You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we'll be reading from 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Is If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for, yourself, for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for standing for a longer passage. Um, before I get into it, uh, we have Redemption Kids today, so if it serves you, we have a class for two to four-year-olds and then five to nine. You can go right across the hallway. Thank you, Layla and others, for serving our kids this morning. We also have some sermon notes today. Uh, I, In particular, if you're going to stay in, if it serves you, I actually have a printed out a, like a cartoon picture of the prophet Elijah in this particular passage. So kids per usual, if you want to fill that out, if you want to color it, put some notes, and then after the service, you can come on up, and I have the, have the suckers right there. So also there's totes in the hallway if that serves. Well, it's great to see you. Um, if you were expecting Logan to preach this morning, I am sorry to disappoint. Uh, Logan uh, sent me a message, I don't know, Wednesday maybe, I think, and he's like, hey, um, I'm sick. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. And if you ever had a head cold and you try to prep a sermon at the same time, it's like nearly impossible. It's like, it is really hard. If you ever try to study for something with a head cold, it's just difficult. So I just said, I'll, I'm feeling good. Uh, I had two weeks off and uh, I was already kind of itching to preach again. So here I am. But today I'll preach a standalone sermon. And then next week I'll get into a new sermon series. It's entitled The Grace of Salvation. Uh, I, what I my intention for that sermon series is that after spending so many weeks uh, looking at the characteristics of living in the kingdom, I wanted to remind us about what it means to get into the kingdom, what God has done to allow us into his kingdom. So I wanted to spend seven weeks at least looking at what God has done to redeem and save his people, so the grace of salvation. And I'll be looking at some wonderful theological doctrines connected to what it means to be saved. I'm not going to get hung up on the theology, but I want to show you the depths of God's work to save and then hopefully help you apply that to your everyday life. So I'll start that next Sunday. As for today, you can open your Bible to 1 Kings 18. You can probably just keep your finger there. We'll spend most of our time in that chapter looking at this pretty remarkable story of, of God's doing. So let me quickly pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. <laughs> Lord, as I just think of all the things that you've done throughout history, it is astonishing, amazing. And help us to be in awe and in wonder, not only of who you are, sovereign God, almighty, majestic, wonderful, but all that you've done. And Lord, as I approach 1 Kings 18, as we approach 1 Kings 18, Lord, pray that you'd use your word to speak to us this morning. Show us your grandeur, your majesty, through your mighty works. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. I recently um, listened in on a conversation between two pastors. Uh, if you want the names, the names are uh, Toby Sumpner and Jared Longshore. They don't know me. I just kind of watch them on YouTube or whatever. And they said something that struck me. They said, you need to preach like a Narnian. So they're, they're, they were talking to pastors, right? And they made that statement. You need to preach like a Narnian. And I love the Chronicles of Narnia series. And so like, and I preach. And I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> what does he mean? And more. So I watched the video. Uh, if you don't know, Narnia is a fictional world created by C.S. Lewis. You can read about Narnia in the Chronicles of Narnia book series. Narnia is a place of adventure, 
imagination and magic. Anyone who has read the books know all the parallels with Christianity, in particular Aslan, the Christ figure, being the chief parallel. Now, I appreciated the thoughts of these two pastors as they discussed the importance of Narnia in the Christian life. Like They made, they made the statement, every year you've got to read through your Bible and read through the Chronicles of Narnia, every single year. I realize that the content of their conversation is not just for pastors, but for all Christians. Sure, I need to preach like a Narnian. I want to do that this morning. But we all need to live like a Narnian. In a genuine sense, we live in Narnia. Narnia is not the place where we go to when we die, but it is the world around us. This Narnian world is, is natural and it's supernatural. We live in a world where the natural law exists alongside miracles, the supernatural. One of the pastors explained his point by recounting the acts of God throughout history. God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, which is impressive if you're willing to stop and think about it. There was a flood in which God took Noah's family and two animals of every kind and put them on a boat. God used Moses to change the course of history. What did Moses use? A staff. And in those stories about Moses, there's plague after plague in which God demonstrates his power. When God, God's people were, are finally led out of slavery in Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. But how did they cross the Red Sea? Did they go over a bridge? No. What did God do? He parted the Red Sea. And as Israel goes through, there's two massive walls of water. And after Israel goes through, the water falls in on the Egyptian army. We live in a world where God provides manna from heaven and water from a rock. One of the pastors points out that we live in a world where a donkey can talk. Not the donkey from Shrek, but like a real donkey. We live in a Narnian world where Jesus turns water into wine and multiplies bread and fish. We live in a world where dead people are raised to life. Like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to go find Lazarus, and I'm just going to be like, what was it like? What about Jesus walking on water? We live in a world where the Son of God dies on a cross. He is buried in a tomb. And then a few days later, he is with his disciples, talking about the kingdom of God. We live in a world where after the ascension of Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit descends upon the people of God, empowering them to preach the gospel and do Narnian-like acts in this Narnian-like world. And if you continue to read the book of Acts, right, you just have more of this. One of these pastors continued to explain that all these stories tell us about the God of the Bible. All these stories suggest that God is fundamentally personal with his creation. 
God created the world, sustains the world, and cares for his creation. And God continues to be at work. I want you to see that we live in a Narning world because it will help you come to terms with the power, the authority, and the works of God in 1 Kings 18. The story in 1 Kings 18 is a, another Narnian-like event. The, the pure materialist, uh, the pure atheist, uh, the pure rationalist will dismiss 1 Kings 18 because it cannot be explained with logic or science. But the Narnian-like person looks at 1 Kings 18 and says, no, hold on a second, God created logic and science. Hold on. If Jesus can raise the dead, then he can start a fire without a match. So, as we look at today's story, remind yourself, we live in Narnia. Aslan is at work. If, you, if the book of First Kings is unfamiliar territory for you, here's, here's just a quick overview that serves as the context of our passage. The Old Testament books of First and Second Kings are historical books that tell us about the people of God after the life of David. So post-David, think chronologically on a timeline. First Kings opens up with uh, the, the kingship of David's son, Solomon. If you know anything about Solomon, his reign starts out okay, like he builds a temple, and then he writes a few books of the Old Testament. Okay, so far so good, but eventually Solomon begins to compromise his faith. By the time you get to 1 Kings chapters 9 through 11, Solomon allows the, for worship of all kinds of other, quote, gods. Like, he went down the hill and he went down fast. So, like, not cool. When, when Solomon dies, he looks less like King David and more like Pharaoh. And the story of God's people in the promised land gets worse. While God will bring about a future Messiah through the, through the lineage of David and Solomon, the facts on the ground are really beginning to look disgusting. After the death of Solomon, his son takes over, and he's a train wreck. The country splits into two, with Jude in the south and Israel in the north. So between these two countries, we are told in First and Second Kings about the reign of 40 kings. And we're told about 20 in the north, 20 in the south. But here's the important point that is the main thread for today's passage. When a new king is introduced, we're told a little bit about their character and faith, or lack thereof. One of the principal points made with each king is this. Does the king worship the God of Israel, and I put this in bold, alone? Got a couple head nods. Does the king worship the God of Israel alone? Now, if we step back for a moment, that is the question for the people of God throughout history and even today. Notice that the question is not directed toward pagans or unbelievers. The question is not directed toward the atheist. The question is not directed toward the person who has consciously rejected God. The, the question is directed toward God's people then and now. 
of the 40 kings recorded in First and Second Kings, those books, only eight-ish, like, actually respond in the affirmative. Like, that's 20%. Not great. Now you understand why, eventually, God has to send his people into exile in Babylon. Most of the kings that reigned after David took the kingdom and made a mockery of it by walking away from God and his commandments. Verse 18. They were doing the things that that God warned them against. Do not worship other idols or gods. And they end up doing that very thing. Now, the idolatry of Judah and Israel is the context for the prophet Elijah. Elijah is a prophet who is to speak on behalf of God. He's not a fortune teller. It's not what he does. He is to call out idolatry and injustice while also calling on God's people to repent of their sins and to turn and follow God's commandments. That's what he does. Now, if you think of yourself, it sounds a lot like the New Testament. That would be right. Here's Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Here's Matthew 6.4. No one can serve two masters. Like, you want to hold that. No one can serve two masters. That's going to play a part in today's story. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In the context of this passage, you cannot serve God in money. And in 1 John, the appeal is straightforward. Little children, like if you're a follower of God, this is for you. You, you, you little child, Sean Powers, little child, keep yourself from idols. The question we are all confronted with this morning is in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18. We read, how long will you go limping? <laughs> Love that imagery. Like, it's, I'm like, what do I do? Where do I go? How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. It's pretty straightforward, right? Pick what's it going to be? What's it going to be for you? What's it going to be for me? We will look at this question in in context in a moment, but the question should challenge us to pause and ask if we have our own cultural bales that we are serving. If our worship of God is being mixed, then we need to stop. And we need to address it. I mean, I think the question's relevant. Are we worshiping God on Sunday between 10 and 11.30, maybe 12 or 12.30 if you're on the, on the set up and tear down crew, right? And then the rest of the week, you're serving something or someone else. Like verse, verse 21 of 1 Kings 18 forces us to make a choice. Will you surrender all of your life, everything that you own, Will you surrender it all to Jesus Christ? All of it. Not like 99% over here, but that 1%, you got to keep for yourself. Are you willing to surrender it all, or will you serve someone or something else? You can't say yes to both. 
And if you say no to both options, it will only take a few minutes for your heart to find something to worship. You know, I'm not worried about anyone in this room simultaneously worshiping the God of the Bible and the God of Islam, right? That's not our context. Maybe there's context in the world where that is a, a temptation. But probably not here. However, I do think we need to take a look. If our worship of God is being mixed with materialism, things are good in America. We got stuff. A job, right? I'm a pastor. Ministry. Don't tell me that can't be idolized. I know it can. This is popular in America. Worship of the self. It's all about me. And here I'm really going to step on a few toes, right? Do we mix our worship of the one true God with some personality test? Right? The story in 1 Kings 18 reveals several things for us this morning. First, it is good and right to be challenged about our allegiances in life. If you're not challenged or reminded, then you can become complacent or maybe even ambivalent toward God. There is a real danger in mixing our worship of God with something or someone else. When you mix black paint and white paint, you have a completely different color. Gray, you have a a different object of your affection. Second, the way to be wholly devoted to God is not by clubbing you over the head with a hammer, right? That, no, that doesn't work. That's not what we see this morning. We become wholly devoted to God by observing and being in awe of his power, authority, and sovereignty. I mean, allow the Narnian event of 1 Kings 18 just to put you in awe. God, God does that. Here's a little more context, and then we'll look at the details. In 1 Kings 18, during the time of Elijah, Ahab was king, and he married a Canaanite woman named Jezebel. Jezebel's a wicked woman. You do not name your daughter Jezebel. Bad idea. As a result of their marriage, Ahab moved away from worshiping the God of Israel, if you ever worshiped the God of Israel in the first place, and he began to worship Canaanite gods. Elijah confronts Ahab about his idolatry. He must confront Ahab because he is leading an entire generation of people away from God. I mean, that's significant. It's not just about Ahab and his idolatry. It's what he's doing with the entire country. You see, the story is not about Elijah versus Ahab. The story is about a whole generation of people who are being lied to and led astray from Yahweh. What results from this confrontation, and this is what's cool and fun, is like a battle royale between the God of the Bible and Baal. Enough is enough in Elijah is about to show the magic of Narnia. In verse 21, Elijah tells the people of Israel they are limping along in their faith. They need to choose, right? We've talked about that. You cannot serve both. The God of Israel demands exclusive worship. In comparison, other religions may allow for like a plurality of gods, but not the God of Israel. That's one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith, that it demands of its disciples for us to worship him alone. Now, it's interesting to me 
that things do not change throughout history. We say America is like the melting pot, right? It's the melting pot of plurality and inclusivism. When we get outside of our Christian circles, it's unpopular to say that Christianity is not a pluralistic religion. It's not. All roads do not lead to heaven. There's only one way we can know God. It is when God regenerates a person's cold, dead heart, and then by faith and repentance, they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus continues to rule and reign over every square inch of his universe. The God of Muhammad, Buddha, or your favorite politician, the modern self, do not compare to the God of the Bible. They are all different versions of Baal. How often are we tempted to serve them? Notice the people's response in verse 21 after Elijah confronts them. To quote the musicians Simon and Garfunkel, it was the sound of silence. Were they ashamed? Was there conviction in the heart? Did they realize their hand was in the cookie jar and Elijah caught them and he was calling them out? As Philip Ryken says, the silence spoke volumes. It meant the people of Israel did not know where they had placed their ultimate allegiance. We don't know why there was silence, but their silence spoke many words. Elijah is going to press the point, so he actually creates a plan, right? Both parties will summon their God to start a fire. Elijah tells Ahab to bring to Mount Carmel the 450 prophets of Baal, and we read this before our passage today, plus another 400 prophets from Asherah. Elijah tells Ahab, he's like, hey, get the entire team, bring them all. All 450 plus the other 400? Yeah, all of them, all of them. Now, I'm not great at probability and statistics, but 450 plus 400 is 850. That's a lot of people. Fortunately, it seems like the prophets of Asherah were just going to watch. They're going to be the spectators. Nonetheless, 450 to 1 seems like a lopsided situation. Here's another quote by Riken, which I find amusing. And I, and I have a picture of like uh, two people boxing. In one corner was Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, with all of his backers, 22 score and 10 prophets on the government's payroll. In the other corner stood the Lord God of heaven, heaven and earth with his only prophet, Elijah. Like from a rational perspective, you don't bet on Elijah. <laughs> right? My Minnesota Vikings have a better chance of winning the Super Bowl than Elijah winning this particular situation. But we live in Narnia, right? We live in Narnia. From a, from a supernatural perspective, you look at the God of Elijah and you sit and wait and watch and see what God will do. You buckle up because if you know the God of Israel, if you know what he has done all throughout history, you know something awesome is about to take place. 
as the kids say, Narnia is about to get lit. Elijah gives additional terms for this cosmic smackdown. Each side is going to build an altar to sacrifice a bull. So we've got two altars, two bulls. Each side will call on their God to bring down fire for sacrifice. No matches, no flintstone, flint stones, <laughs> no lighter. Each side is to pray to their God to provide the fire. Elijah allows the prophets of Baal to go first. I think that's good sportsmanship. From, until, from morning to noon, the prophets of, of Baal cry out. It's verse 26. For a second time, there is silence. But this time, the silence is from Baal. At noon, Elijah interjects. Cry out loud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. <laughs> like, you've got to see a little bit of the humor in here in these words. Like, it's entertaining that Elijah openly mocks the prophets of Baal. Perhaps he is offering a little bit of holy trash talk, right? Like, your God, he's either in deep thought, he's reading a book, and just pondering, or he's going to the bathroom on a vacation or taking a midday nap. Now, I don't know what to make of Elijah's mocking, but there is a point to be made. Baal is a false god used by Satan to deceive people, and Elijah knows that their prayers to Baal are in vain. It's worth pointing out that Satan will use anything and everything he can to deceive the people of God. As Christians, we do not, do not need to be afraid of the predations of the evil one. Christians are secure in Christ, but we need to be aware of the predations of Satan. We must be aware that Satan would love us to wander away from the one true God. Therefore, instructing and protecting the heart, in particular with the word of God, is essential. If you do not fill your mind and heart with the things of God, something else will fill the mind and heart. So we can chuckle when Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal, but we also need to be warned of the underlying issue because evil can double down on itself. And that is exactly what we see here. Instead of relenting, the prophets of Baal do double down. They begin to cut themselves with a sword and spear to the point that they were bleeding, and they continued to cry out to their false god. We read in verse 29, And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I mean, there's a touch of irony going on here. Baal is supposed to be the god of storms. Just a little bit of lightning could start that fire. There's also a lesson for us in this verse. You will find emptiness and a deaf ear when you worship something or someone other than the living God. You will be disappointed when you worship another person, another alleged God, politics, money, the self, a pastor, and the list goes on. We must protect the heart from idol worship. 
Like John Calvin was correct when he said that our hearts are idle factories. Sean Powers can churn out idols like widgets going onto a conveyor belt in the factory. I know that about myself. Because this is true, what we will now see with Elijah is critical. After the unsuccessful attempt by the prophets of Baal in verse 30, Elijah tells the people to come near. He's like, all right, now that this whole thing is over, everyone come here. He's like, gather around. And I'm suspecting he wants everyone to gather around because he wants, he wants no one to miss the point. He wants there to be no mistake about what is about to happen. He says, everyone gather around. Kids are here. Kids come too. Everyone. And then, in a slight change in posture, Elijah turns the moment from a smackdown of Baal into a worship service. He grabs 12 stones to make an altar. And any person from Israel who knew their history understood what the number 12 represented, the 12 tribes of Israel. Elijah believed that God split the sea. He believed that God could allow a donkey to talk. And he believed that God was going to answer his call. Elijah is a Narnian-like man. Now, if the next part of the story were to be that Elijah prayed and God responded, we all would like stand up and applaud, be like, yeah, nice work. He did it again. God is batting a thousand. But Elijah is going to continue to highlight the power and authority of God. After stacking wood and placing the bull on the wood, he pours water over everything, four jars, three times, all over his altar. Now listen, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not the brightest bulb on the porch. I understand that. But even I know it's difficult to light an object on fire when it's wet. He's really making a point here. Elijah begins to pray in verse 36. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. The stones, and invoking the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make this a holy moment. Elijah's prayer tells us two things about God. First, regardless of how the people of Israel treat God, he is still God. God does not cease to be God if he's not acknowledged. The existence of God is not contingent upon Sean Powers acknowledging God. Second, it is God who will turn the hearts of his people back to him. Verse 37. He knows their wicked heart. They're not going to make their way back to God on their own. It is God who created the world. It is God who sustains the world. And it is God who is ultimately sovereign over the hearts of men. The sovereignty of God over the heart of man does not let anyone off the hook for their idolatry, but Elijah's prayer is an acknowledgement of the power of God compared to man. You know, we, we, we can look at this prayer by Elijah and be like, man, I, 
I could pray like that. We could pray like Elijah. We could pray remembering what God has done throughout history, right? Like when we read the Exodus account, guess what? That's our history. <laughs> that's ours. I mean, what we read here in 1 Kings 18, that's our history. And when we pray, we can, we can acknowledge our history before God and, re- and remind ourselves that he is sovereign and all-powerful. We should also pray that God protect the heart from idolatry. We should pray that the moment our hearts drift from the holy and living God, that he would bring us back. We're so prone to wander, and we desperately need God. We should pray knowing that we are utterly dependent upon God. Amongst hundreds and perhaps thousands of people, Elijah was the only one reliant on God. Nevertheless, he will pray and worship the God of Israel. In this Narnian moment, Elijah's prayer is just another act of worship before his God. And then in verse 38, this is the moment, right? God responds with fire. The wood and the stones turn to dust. The water, it says, is licked up. At that moment, the number of people participating in this worship service dramatically changed. They fell to the ground, and then the people said out loud, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Our story ends with Elijah ordering the prophets of Baal to be killed. I don't want to linger on this point, but it is worth stating that God hates leaders who deceive people with lies. It's not the most comfortable thing to say or perhaps to hear, but that's biblically true. Paul House makes a similar point in his commentary on 1 Kings. Those who lead others astray in this manner are held more accountable than mere followers of heresy, though the followers are forced to choose the correct way as well. I think that's a good balance between what's going on here in 1 Kings 18. There are a lot of religions and ideologies being perpetuated And I think it can be appropriate to have a holy anger against that that leader or that Instagram influencer, right, who's just leading people away from God, right? Yes, even in Narnia, the white witch is attempting to deceive, and the white witch needs to be put down, even in Narnia. So what what are some takeaways from our story, from this amazing story that demonstrates God's power, rule, and authority? First, the question is actually really simple. Do you believe that Elijah called on God to bring the fire and God responded? Do you believe believe in 1 Kings 18, in the story being told here? If you do not accept this story, then how you view the world is probably or might be dominated by perhaps pure materialism or rationalism. You do, you, at the very least, you do not have a Narnian imagination. If you do not believe that God started the fire, as I've said, how can you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you believe God started the fire, well, I welcome you to Narnia. I welcome you to a world where God is 
intimately involved in his creation. God is interested in seeing his glory displayed through the natural and the supernatural. God is personally interested in you worshiping him and him alone. God is interested in that. We can repeat in worship. We can sing this. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. We can say it over and over all day. The Lord, he is God. Ryan, you can put a melody to it for me. The Lord, he is God. What a declaration. What a banner to put over our lives. I mean, even when you're tempted to worship something or someone else, man, what a great scripture to quote. To remind yourself, the Lord, he is God. Here are a few more takeaways from 1 Kings 18. We need more people with the courage of Elijah. Now listen, you're not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. But we can look to his courage and say, hey, there's something to that. Elijah spoke, acted, and trusted in God when he was on an island by himself. In every generation, there are temptations to walk away, to be silent, or to mix the worship of God with idols. And it does take courage to preach the truth even when it seems no one is listening. Think of it this way. How would you respond to Elijah if he were here today, right? The secular culture would call him crazy, to say the least. There are sectors of the church, perhaps, that would not agree with his words or his actions. Yet we need men and women to have the courage of Elijah because idolatry continues to exist and persist. Second, today's passage is a heart check, right? How is it not a heart check? It must be. Who or what do we set our affections upon that is not the one true God? Every, in terms of what we're tempted by, everyone's going to be different. But it's worth doing the heart check and asking the question. I mean, it, it is good and right for you to have affections for good things, right? Like your spouse. I have affection for my wife, Sharice. But one of the worst kinds of idol worship is when we take a good thing, a good gift from God, and we make that an idol. That temptation lurks around every single corner. I mean, over many years of pastoral ministry, I've seen family subtly worshipped. I've seen sex, a good gift from God in the context of marriage. I've seen that worshipped. I've seen one person idolize another person. I've seen pastors idolize ministry. The way to guard against idolizing good things is to remember all that God gives is a gift. That helps us to rightly prioritize the things we do have. When you acknowledge that the origin of all good things you have is God, then we rightly order all that God gives and God is glorified. A final and perhaps the most important application point is that we marvel at the works of God in this Narnian world. To quote another musician, Billy Joel, I'm on a roll today, we didn't start the fire, (laughs) but God started the fire. Once again, we can marvel at the fact that God has shown himself to be sovereign over all things. The wind, the rain, the moon, and the stars. Yes, our heart. He helped He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And we read from the prophet Jeremiah, when he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. 
And he causes the cloud to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. A reason a person might not believe we exist in Narnia is that they may think it is either in the past or in the future. We think Narnia ceased at the resurrection of Jesus Christ or Pentecost. Or we think that Narnia will come when Jesus returns. And I'm here to say that Narnia, the Narnia of 1 Kings 18 and the book of Revelation is right now. I believe that God controls the wind and the rain. I believe God can make something burn without a match. I believe God can cause a donkey to talk today, right now. If you brought one in, he could do that. He might call me a fool. That's fine. But I believe in Narnia. But if you, like me, believe in Narnia, then we are put in awe and wonder because of who God is and what he has done throughout the past, the present, and the future. And if you want to know how to fight the Baals, the idols in your life, revel in Narnia, but more importantly, importantly, revel in the God of Narnia. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.